0: Ninth Story Studios. Giving Story a voice.
1: This is Mary Murphy. And ready or not,
0: it's time to get wicked. Because it's the spooky season, and because this is the Wicked Library, we've partnered with our new favorite mobile puzzle game, Best Fiends. Best Fiends is the best casual mobile puzzle game we've seen. Not only is it wickedly fun, but it's hard to put down. It's no surprise it's had over 100 million downloads. You know how much we love story here at the Wicked Library, which is one of the reasons Best Fiends is so much fun. You play through an actual storyline complete with good guys, who are, of course, the fiends. We wouldn't want it any other way. And the slugs, who are, well, let's call them wicked or not-so-good guys. Your fiends start out as smaller versions of their future selves, babies really, but as you play and more fiends join your team, much like the Wicked Library, they become more powerful and help you solve more and more challenging puzzles as you progress through the game. I've never had more fun with a puzzle game, and I can tell it will be an ongoing challenge since there are thousands of levels and more keep getting added all the time. There's always a fresh challenge waiting when I need to explore and enjoy. Just like the Wicked Library, it's for grown-ups, even if it's just as much fun as you had when you were a kid. So download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends, for wicked good fun. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. What triggers fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights... Press pause or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation are under your control. Hello, and welcome to Season 11 of The Wicked Library, a season of sci-fi horror that I'm very excited to launch. The Wicked Library owes its ongoing growth and success not only to you, the listeners, but to so many amazing people. In celebration of that fact, this season I'm excited to hand over the mic to a number of guest hosts who I consider to be part of our Wicked family. Some names you'll recognize as voice actors, authors, artists, and composers who have contributed to making the show what it has become. And some are new to our Wicked Halls. Visit thewickedlibrary.com forward slash host to take a look at who else will be hosting the show besides me this season. There are still a couple of names to add, so check back often. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate the show five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your reviews help others find the show, and we love hearing from you. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. Our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible possible and get fun rewards. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and we really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists. In addition to knowing you're part of making this show possible, you also get rewards like free episodes at higher bit rates, access to bonus stories, and at higher levels of support even more. You can support us at patreon.com forward slash Library. I also wanted to let you know that two TWL alums featured on this year's Pride celebration will be participating in a special panel here in Pittsburgh, where the Wicked Library is made. This Tuesday, October 5th, at 7 p.m., Haley Piper and Eric LaRocca will be discussing queer horror for the University of Pittsburgh Library System. It's free and open to the public. The link for more information to attend, well, it's wicked long, so I created a short link that will take you right to the page. Just type thewickedlibrary.com forward slash pit event. That's P-I-T-T event. And that'll take you right to that page. Lastly, if you don't know already, we post a weekly book review and recommendation column to thewickedlibrary.com. The column is called Fully Booked with Brianna Morgan. And in line with our mission, you'll find reviews with a strong focus on indie and small press horror fiction. Head to thewickedlibrary.com forward slash booked Check them out and watch our Twitter feed at Wicked Library for notices when new reviews post each week. And by the way, Brianna has a new book out called Mouthful of Ashes, available in paperback and Kindle at Amazon.com. Check the show notes for today's episode to find a link to pick up a copy for your own Wicked Library. Now, without any further ado, today's dark tale that kicks off our new season is t 4 3 two by twl alum and friend as well as my writing partner for season five of victoria's lift crystal connor the story is brought to life by the very talented denise michelle johnson accompanied by a custom score by our good friend nico veteze of we talk of dreams now strap in tight and let's get ready to jump
1: In the year of our Lord, 2741. Time travel is nothing like it is in science fiction. There are no swirling lights or tunnels. Just pain. Excruciating pain. It feels like you're being pulled through one of those tiny holes on a cheese grater. Imagining What that must feel like is only a third of what it actually feels like. The best way I can describe it is it it feels like every bone in your body, all 206 of them, are being slowly pulverized at once. While your bones are being ground into a fine powder, your nerve endings feel exposed. Have you ever had a really bad toothache? I mean, a really bad one. When the pain is so bad, you momentarily go blind? Well, that's the kind of pain that accompanies the crushing of your bones. Except, instead of radiating from one tooth, the pain pulsates along your entire body. Like I said... Excruciating pain. The beam we traveled through took us from point A to B and back to A again. It wasn't quick and neat. We'd wake up naked, but oftentimes we didn't. And trust me, that was worse. When our clothes stayed on, it was because they were embedded, fused, and entangled within our dermis. We had to wait until the fabric was pushed up through the top layer of our skin before we could peel them off as if we were pulling a band-aid from a wound that's not yet healed while wincing at the pain. If that's not bad enough, at first, you can't remember anything. Not who you are, not why you're there, and certainly not where you've just come from. The amnesia could last anywhere from a few hours up to a whole day. During the time before our memory returns, anything can happen. It was a lesson we learned the hard way. Everything was done to not send a jumper into a dangerous environment. However, if a circumstance were extenuating as they were now, there would be no other choice. T-minus three. The launch capsule was dark and cramped. While I'm not claustrophobic, there isn't a person alive who doesn't fear being closed in, fear being trapped in darkness, or worse, fear dying in transport. After all this time, after all the training, jumping, never got easier as I focused on steadying my heartbeat and slowing my breathing. Maggie, the engineer, made some calculations and adjusted the dials. The electric silence of the machine that powered the capsule got louder as it sped up. I stood on shaky, unstable legs. It was hard to remain calm, even with all my training. I've jumped countless times before, but never this far. Maggie asked if I was okay. I told her I was. But of course, I wasn't. The Afro-Asiatic language of the timeline destination hadn't been spoken in several thousand millennia. Their culture and way of life had all but been forgotten. My orders were clear. I was to stay out of the way and observe. In order to fix what was about to happen, we first needed to understand what went wrong. T minus two. I hated this. With a deep breath, I walked into the platform and closed my eyes as I slowly exhaled. I stepped off the platform. I woke up as the rays of the rising sun were shining its light into a small cave. I was cold, alone, and thankfully naked. In the year before Christ, 422. I stayed there, writhing in pain for two days. When I had strength enough to stand and explore my surroundings, I eased into the opening and peered outside. By a natural pool, a group of women were washing clothes. I stumbled toward them. My appearance startled them and led them to believe the worst. My silence served as confirmation. They bathed me by the banks, clothed me, took me home and fed me. Later, under the cover of darkness, I disappeared into the night. I have been in this timeline for 20 days now. I was dressed appropriately, blended in, and was at my designated location. I know what was coming, but as I watched, I never imagined it would be like this. Above, the heavens tore open, and in an instant the sky was full of angels. The choir, descending through the rip in the earth's atmosphere, was none other than the highly feared Malakum. Worse, it was the angel, Erkaline who led the charge. The pitch-black cherubs shot from the sky. Their onyx wings were sharper than any blade made by the hands of man. Each celestial was wrapped in heavy gold chains that bound them to the oaths that they would never break. As they plummeted towards earth with lightning speed, they left brilliant streaks of fire in their wake. Embodying the purity of heaven's honor and the swiftness of God's wrath, these angels would be the last anyone would wish to see openly arrogant, painfully tyrannical, frequently cruel, inspiring nothing but terror. These were the champions of God. The reward bestowed upon the choir for their loyalty and how they were so overwhelmed by outrage that a coup d'etat had been attempted in heaven, that a move had been made against their father, was that these angels were made immune to temptation. Everything they did was with the blessings of God, and because of this, they can never be dragged down to hell. Be it a son of man, a lord of heaven, or the dregs of hell, no one escaped the swift and terrible justice of the Malachim. The birds perched upon the reed and the mud-patched roof burst into flight and attempts to escape. I wanted to flee as well, but instead, I had to bear witness. I have trained lifetimes for this. 23 years ago, in a land where fraternizing between humans and the divine was strictly forbidden, when teaching outside of the light was prohibited, it was decided that mankind would be enlightened. There was a reason for keeping this type of knowledge protected, so it was cautioned that this gift would be given in a limited degree. Only people who proved themselves trustworthy in the eyes of the divine pedagogues, only those whom they believed would make the finest moral choices when given a rare opportunity, would be allowed to become pupils. For further securities, they ensured that those they taught would not be able to teach it to others. Confident that they had taken all the precautionary measures, they disobeyed their orders, broke the rules, and selected the students. Out of the many, there would only be 12. Jaden, Hannah, Alicia, Samuel, Rachel, Caleb, Asher, Jonah, Priscilla, Abigail, Michael, and Deborah. Things did not go accordingly. There were underestimations. Shortly after lessons began, the students needed help. They were unable to work out the teaching in their own minds, so they sought each other out. They wrote their thoughts on paper, and shared their thinking with others. Slowly, over time, their explanations to one another became clearer. With the simple act of asking questions, the pupils found a way to overcome the intellectual limitations that had been placed upon them by their divine pedagogues. And because knowledge shared is knowledge gained, they began to teach. Their curiosity bloomed beyond the classroom they discovered portals and with fearless curiosity entered them leaving nothing but chaos and carnage in their wake there were warnings alarms sounded despite those efforts tears and rips were pulled from the tapestry of time and space assassins but worse than that Those with good intentions removed people, nations, and entire land masses from the narrative of humanity. Wars, plagues, rot, ruin. The gates of hell opened. The hounds within released. The angels who gave man the knowledge they were forbidden to have were punished. And those burdened with the responsibility of foresight knew that now was the time to act. The malachum slammed to the ground like missiles surrounding the fugitive angels they had come to extradite back to heaven. I gasped. The heavenly absconders attempted to fight. It was a fool's errand. Never alone, a Malakum is always accompanied by another, even more violent and aggressive than themselves all of which who, in turn, are accompanied by even more. The Malaikum's sole purpose is by any means necessary, with all means justifying the end, to enforce compliance and ensure the will of God. No one foolish enough to stand toe to toe with one of these adjudicating angels, especially the angels from the other choir of pedagogues, would win such a contest the weapons were drawn in unison. The Earth-bound angels, who broke their oaths so that they could become the professors of men, didn't stand a chance. Erkulene grabbed an angel who tried to run past him. In one fluid motion, he removed his halo and slipped it over the neck of the captured escapee. With a twist of his wrist, the perfect circle disfigured, assuming the shape of an infinity symbol. Erculene pulled and yanked up, snatched the angel from his feet, breaking his neck. He threw the angel to the ground, slammed his foot into the center of his back, and looked up at the others in his unit as they gathered the rest of the angels who would stand before God and be judged. He glared at the prisoners as they were prepared for transport. The crimes that the educating angels would pay for were the gravest of all. They had broken the law and disobeyed orders and taught man sacred, divine knowledge. The one thing that God strictly prohibited. Erculene's eyes, the color of slate, narrowed as he looked down at the captives. Penamu, Armoros. Sinjaza, Gadriel, Araquil, Azazel, Ezequiel, Shamshiel, Sariel, Kokabil, Barquil. His stare was debilitating. Though they tried, the angels cowering before him could not look away. Urkeline's eyes narrowed further. There was an angel unaccounted for. Where is he? The angels in captivity remained silent. As heaven's special forces took to the skies with their cargo in tow, Epaproditus remained at large. I came from hiding to watch the angels ascending back to their rightful place in the realm of God. My mission was complete. I prepared for the return jump Embraced myself for the pain. With a heavy sigh, I shook my head. I hated this. T minus 11. I have been on so many recon missions to antiquity that I am now versed in two languages. I am assimilated into their culture and accepted as one of their own. When I jumped in the year before Christ, 421, I stayed an entire year. The intel I gathered over the decades while watching from the shadows has been invaluable. I found out that the angel, Amoros, taught Hannah the power of magic. In the beginning, she used her knowledge for creativity, but it took no time at all before she used her magic to comfort, soothe, and to facilitate the bonding of man to nature. She became a healer. People fraught with worry, plagued with fear, sought her out, and she would send them away at peace. Hannah's thoughts raced beyond her control. She wondered if there were other ways her magic could be used. Thoughts of improving her craft robbed her of sleep. In an unfortunate turn of events, Hannah herself grew fraught with worry. She was the only one who knew what she knew. There was no one she could go to for comfort. It was in a time before people were writers, when the spoken word was the way of the world, that Pinimu taught his apprentice, Jaden, how to make ink and paper. Once those skills were mastered, he was taught to read and write. As Jaden learned to read and write, he learned new words. As he learned new words, he learned different ways in which to write. With each new word came new sentences. With new sentences came questions. He created words to ask questions that were beyond the depths of his understanding. Not being able to grasp the concepts of his own imagination made his head hurt, and it left him feeling jittery until he discovered the words that brought clarity. There was nothing soothing in the things that he had come to understand. Time after time, His mouth slowly opened with each new procurement of knowledge. His eyes widened at uncovering another secret. With each new question, an answer. With each new answer, a shift in the paradigm of thought. These thoughts terrified him. His chest felt as if it were full of large, scurrying beetles. His head hurt. He couldn't sleep. Being the only one who knew what he knew left him feeling isolated. The act of sharing knowledge, the need to unburden himself from the weight of terrible truths was as fundamental a human need as maternal reproduction. His undeniable urge to seek counsel was instinctual. He sought the comfort of the healer. Jaden was surprised to learn that Hannah had the same feeling of unease, and she too needed comfort. The conversation lasted for hours. Jaden taught her all that he knew, and in gratitude, she taught him as well, which brought comfort to them both. Learning to read and write helped Hannah to capture multitudes of thoughts that swam in her head. Writing gave her a way to bring all her thoughts together in a coherent way, allowing her to identify the gaps in her learning and the parts of an idea that remained unclear. She loved writing as much as she loved magic. It allowed her to create new words that helped her to consolidate her thinking. Writing everything down gave her the chance to go back to it, reflect upon her work, Clarify her thoughts and develop new ideas. She wrote on multitudes of pages, threaded them with twine, and called them her grimoire. Over time, she had several volumes, accompanied by dozens of loose parchments, piled high on her shelves. Her books and her writings sat evenly dispersed between row upon neat row of dustless jars. Each jar was labeled in the same neat script left by the even strokes of her quill. Every label faced forward and was categorized according to the repulsive ingredients or dangerous contents held within. Studying and practicing her craft consumed her. She became a prolific inventor of spells, a famed healer. With the patient determination of the spider. She was able to write spells and create potions that were as intricate as a web, each new concept more complex than the one before. Her endless, relentless quest for answers twisted and turned within her mind, suffocating her with their whispers. One night, as darkness fell from the night sky, Hannah massaged her throbbing temples, as she looked over the items on the table before her. Yarrow root, the fur from a wolf, red cap mushrooms, the blood of a beetle, and the claw of a crow, ingredients for a new spell. She set time aside for this. The only living being she could willfully tolerate while working was her cat, who would dissolve into shadows and bring back all manner of creatures to be used in her experiments. The knocking caused interruption. Instantly, she was angry. She made it perfectly clear that at these hours, she was not to be disturbed or summoned. With almost blinded rage, she bolted from the table and stormed to the door. Of all those students selected, Deborah was the most devoted. She was enthusiastic and eager until the lessons went beyond the extremely remedial. The toil of the apprenticeship became difficult. Algebra kept her in a state of surging perplexity. She couldn't wrap her mind around the symbols needed for the calculations. The concepts of space in relation to distance made her head throb. Trying to understand the constant, continuous change of calculus had a numbing effect that caused mental paralysis. She tried and tried and tried, over and over again, but it never got any easier. The difficulty in understanding numbers and learning how to manipulate them plagued her sleep. There was no word to describe the craving she had for mental rest. It was worse than being hungry, as she imagined that it was probably worse than dying of thirst. For nearly a week, her mind stalled with swift-moving, unprogressive thoughts. Spinning formulas whirled around before plunging themselves off cliffs of equations. With an abundance of frustration, Deborah pulled the coverings from her body, and got out of bed. She left her home and wandered through her village. Numbers and symbols swirled around her head like an invisible halo. There was only one place she could go. There was only one person who might be able to help. Hannah. Deborah stood beneath the healer's thatch awning, waiting to be answered. The door swung open with so much force, strands of her hair pulled away from her face, as they chased the movement of wind. Deborah was so exhausted, she didn't register the anger on the face of the woman who greeted her. She started rambling before Hannah's fury could be expressed. The lessons are hard. I am so confused. I can't understand my thoughts, and I can't tell you what they are because they won't sit still in my mind. I'm so tired. Please, give me something that will help me sleep. Deborah's uncontrollable sobbing broke Hannah's heart because she knew exactly how Deborah felt. She stepped over the threshold to embrace her and invite her in. Once both women were inside, the cat... Pitch and color sat handsomely by the fire, fixing them with his yellow eyes as tea was prepared. Once the tears were dry and Deborah was in a calm state, a scroll was unfurled. It wasn't a remedy for sleep. What Hannah gave to Deborah was what Jaden had given to her. Learning to write changed Deborah's life, and over time, it was this knowledge that allowed her to sleep. The type of thinking involved in justifying a strategy or explaining an answer was quite different from the thought required to merely solve an equation. Learning to read and write changed the very fundamental way in which she thought. Writing about a math problem oftentimes led to a solution. Working out the equations on paper served to explain what was being done and why it worked. Where once Deborah couldn't grasp the concept of arithmetic, she was now developing her own theorems. As the education of Jaden, Hannah, and Deborah ascended, they spent their days basking in each other's company, and the conversations were always a goldmine of information, sparking off new ideas. They created and hunted for new words, The new words buzzed around their heads like bees. Every new word that rolled from their tongues was akin to eating honey, stolen honey, and they couldn't get enough of it. A new word was created, addiction. With a shrug of the shoulder, they reveled in it. To those who were uneducated, the change in them seemed drastic. Because those without the teachings had no idea what Jaden, Hannah, and Deborah were saying when they spoke. They were gossiped about instead. The uncomprehending stared at Jaden, Hannah, and Deborah with fearful eyes and deemed them dangerous. The trio were too distracted with their studies to care. They studied alone, they studied together, they conducted their own research studies and helped each other with experiments. At first, they were elated, but with each new question, an answer. With each new answer, a shift in the paradigm of thought. Hannah looked at Deborah like she was unsure. Deborah knew it was a great idea, but Hannah didn't think so, and neither did Jaden. Jaden. Deborah could sense the doubt radiating from the two of them, like heat off a rock that had baked all day in the sun. It wouldn't work if they weren't on board, but Deborah was confident that she could convince them. After all, this was nothing but another question. Together, they asked it. The answer revealed shocked them all. Sheer panic ensued. The realization came far too late. Once a secret was revealed, it could not be hidden again and must be allowed to continue, whatever the consequences might be for its possessor. The magical, natural, and scientific knowledge bestowed upon them came about illegally. It was never meant to be comprehended by man. This level of awareness was to remain removed and remote existing only in the isolated and inaccessible area of the light, separated from the blissful ignorance of man. With ink carelessly flowing from the tips of their quills, the trio learned new words, found different ways in which to write, to think, and to speak, and they used all of that knowledge to ask questions that weren't meant to be answered. With a sense of horror, it was understood that curiosity had the potential to be a very dangerous thing, and that they should stop. They tried. They really tried. But the truths they discovered were malevolent and self-aware, doing everything in their power to be learned. Once it had crawled into the consciousness of the two Ts, it began to propagate, waging war on all other thoughts, hoping to be the only thought that remained. Curiosity proved a formidable adversary. All that it took for these self-perpetuating, cataclysmic, sentient ideas to take root within the fertile soils of the mind was to read, write, hear, or speak them. Merely thinking about them could push a fragile mind off the precipice of sanity. That wasn't the worst of it there were nine other students, all of whom would ask questions of their own. In attempts to reverse the irreversible, Hannah, Jaden, and Deborah asked more questions and chased curiosity, only to have the audacity to be shocked at the horrific, predictable, inevitable, inescapable climax of such a quest. T minus... Ten, I was supposed to be off duty for three months after returning from that jump, but only two weeks had passed before I was back in the capsule and edging my way towards the platform. The second time I jumped to antiquity, it was to the year before Christ, 447. The target of my observation was a man named Samuel. He was big, quiet an observant when he was focused on something his unwavering determination was oftentimes unsettling the angel named azazel saw these traits as strengths so he taught samuel how to make tools at first they were simple rocks that had their edges chipped away until they were sharp enough to scrape cut and chop later Blunt rocks would be used to strike flakes off larger rocks to shape them into thinner, less rounded implements. This led to the development of the hand axe. From the axe came a smaller, more sophisticated tool called the knife. These smaller blades were easily attached to handles made of bone or antler, which provided greater leverage and increased efficiency. The axe was redesigned, a chisel was created, and together these tools were used to hunt, prepare food, work the wood, and clear swaths of land. When multiple families began to congregate together and live among each other within these community plots, their food needs could no longer be consistently met by the nomadic method of hunting and scavenging. It was then Aroquil showed Rachel the treasures of the soil, and Samuel gave her the tools to unearth them. By the sea, she discovered salt, which was used to preserve meat. While Rachel learned about edible plants, how to forage for seeds and nuts, and which mushrooms were dangerous, if not deadly, if consumed, Simjaza taught Ezira which plants could be used to heal or harm. Rachel and Azaira received a higher education when Hannah taught them all that she knew. With this knowledge, they ushered in the dawn of permanent agricultural settlements. Rachel, using a tool that would be the forefather of the shovel, was in a cave foraging for fungi, collecting insects that would provide protein, and hoping to catch one of those nice and fat burrowing creatures that she heard scurrying around in the darkness. Instead, she dug up a stone that had never before been seen. The way the light danced across the incandescent pebble echoed the flickering rays pouring down from the sun. For days after, she searched for another one, but her efforts were in vain. She took it to Jaden, and he called it gold. Days later, by the river, Another, smaller piece was found. Like the others in his community, Caleb helped toil the land, chop wood, and hunt for prey. However, he spent a significant amount of time looking up. He would gaze for hours at the ever-shifting sky. It changed its colors as if changing clothes. It never failed to amaze him. This was why Ezequiel taught him how to read the clouds. Working closely with Deborah and using new specialized tools made by Samuel, Caleb developed a windmill. The first one was used to grind grain and draw water. The second one, the larger one, allowed them to see movement of the invisible wind when the clouds took a day off. Suddenly and without warning, Rocks were thrown by those outside the community. Blood was drawn, the gold and grain stolen. In a flash of anger and with a yearning for vengeance, all the tools that had been created to build a home became the weapons of war to protect it. Brother fought against brother for a particular patch of ground and tribes became incensed over piles of uninhabited rocks. The righteous opprobrium over the hoarding of resources was shrugged off with depraved indifference. The first war man fought was over resources. A war that would never end. T minus nine. Maggie's eyes narrowed in on the thermometer as the medical officer ran it across my forehead. She couldn't read it from where she was standing But she didn't have to. The officer added the data and nodded, indicating that I was cleared to jump. The icy fingers of panic dragged their nails along my spine. Goosebumps erupted over my skin. A cold sweat beaded on my forehead as I got off the exam table and began to get dressed. I hate this, but it is more than necessary. I was jumping back to the year of our Lord 2503 and my mission was to kill a man. I took a deep breath while closing my eyes in an attempt to center myself. This was going to be my 935th jump. The Agency, as it's called, is a global special forces team that's deployed to prevent or restore the damage to a timeline. We use state-of-the-art equipment to track and apprehend these criminal entrepreneurs, using deadly force to halt their aspirations if required to do so. Our team has a 99.9% success rate. Before the agency, there were various reasons why jumpers leapt. For the wealthy, it was nothing more than something to cross off the bucket list a chance to visit some of the most beautiful places that used to exist on Earth. Scientific adventure outfitters took a group of volcanologists back in time to the Gulf of Naples in order to watch, from the safety of a boat bobbing in the bay, the torrent of rock and flame that shot from the bowels of Mount Vesuvius. Scores of schoolchildren and their chaperones jumped to the year 1893 so that they could go to the world's fair. clairvoyance jumped and returned with messages from loved ones. With the disturbances to the timeline, things were far from fine and dandy. But it got worse when 120 people who had paid $6,700 each for a -a once-in-a-lifetime hunting experience were killed while attempting to track a woolly mammoth. They weren't killed by the massive animal but by the early men that coexisted alongside them. The modern-day hunters were caught off guard by the incomprehensible, cunning, viciousness of ancient man. And if that jump hadn't been bad enough, a terrorist group led by a radical Christianist jumped to Golgotha in attempts to rescue their Lord and Savior, Jesus H. Christ of Nazareth. But with the mercy of God and on the orders of Pontius Pilate, the terrorists from the future were captured. Some of them had been stoned to death, others beheaded, and the unlucky ones were burned alive. The weapons left behind from those two jumps accelerated the way in which man destroyed man. As a result, several parallel universes had been annihilated by war and lay in waste. As a result, the world's governments outlawed time travel. In an extinct timeline, the term coyote was meant to describe an unscrupulous individual who smuggled a person across the U.S.-Mexico border. In this timeline, coyotes smuggled jumpers so that their clients could alter their own past for personal gain. The business became just as lucrative as human trafficking had been, in a timeline that no longer existed. There was only one fugitive jumper left. Due to the profound effect that she had on multiple timelines, she was now the most wanted individual in the world. Sighing, I opened my eyes, looked through the portal, and braced myself as I tried to take it all in. T Minus eight. I arrived two days too late. Dressed as a flight attendant, I watched my mark step out from the black limousine. His curly brown hair fell in soft layers around sculpted shoulders. I was pretty sure I had seen glimpses of him over the last several days. Still, I was unauthorized to rewrite unless I was absolute in my assertion that I was going to erase the right person. His evasion tactics seemed to be a natural-born ability. His effortless elusiveness drove me to the brink of madness. But being pretty sure isn't the same thing as being certain. The eye contact was casual and brief. Looking into his eyes, they glowed like the flames from the pits of hell. I knew without a shadow of a doubt this was the man I had been hunting. I didn't realize it then, which was why he was still alive. Now that I had a positive ID, it did me no good. Frustrated and defeated, I sat down and buckled up as we prepared for flight. The arms dealer, who was leaning back into the rich leather seat as we took to the skies, was a knight. An actual night. Not the sanitized depictions told in fairy tales, but a real night, a purveyor of death and horror. He inspired genocides, encouraging the killings of entire families. The only thing the mercenary was loyal to was money. And the king paid exceptionally well. He brought the flicker of the flame to the tip of his expensive cigar. Inhaling deeply, he closed his eyes and filled his lungs with smoke. The only thing the knight thought about was war. All he dreamt about were different scenarios in which he could go forth and obliterate everything. He was a psychopath through and through perfect for the job of carrying out the dark whims of a dangerous young king. The Chevalier didn't study the past in hopes of avoiding similar mistakes. His academic aspirations were to perfect the craft of carnage. It was well known from the monsters of history that people didn't react to death tolls if the numbers were too high to comprehend. One death can mobilize a community, even a nation. Many deaths, hundreds or thousands, can make a lasting impression to be used for good or bad intentions. Millions of deaths were the golden ticket. Humans, as a whole, did not possess the emotional capacity to cope with that kind of devastation. So they didn't. After learning this, The path the death dealer took was simple, ensuring the death tolls were as high as possible. No matter the scenario, it worked every time. As the first knight, he held the king's ear, and it was his form of barbarism that allowed the crown, through war and intellectual domination, to control other nations for his greedy, selfish purposes and for the benefits of his spoiled royal heir. The knight wanted to see what would happen if the entire world was thrown into survival mode. He was anxious to propose the idea to his liege. I glanced over my shoulder. He was watching the clouds through the window, without a care in the world. Seething with failure, I turned away from him t minus 7 232 years ago the antichrist had come and gone the war the faithful were confident would be won was lost no one was raptured though i was told otherwise it did nothing to alleviate my guilt if only i had killed The night. Because my last mission was so wildly unsuccessful, the United Nations and international coalitions were memories children learned about in history class when education was available to everyone. For centuries the royal family reigned over the entire earth with an iron fist and fought long and hard to bring this new king to the throne. For those who were not bound by blood or allied by oath, it was hell on earth. Yet, it wasn't exactly a paradise for those who were loyal. Like the dawning of a new day, there was an ascension of a new king, a young king, King Raya. He was easy to trust, and most people liked him. There was no indication of evil intent and no hint of self-deviant motives. With his crowning came a glimmer of hope. But it was this conniving persona that made him so very dangerous. King Raya had a silver tongue. A silver tongue is only a blessing if you use it to help. But that's not what he did. His gift of gab was the magic he used to blind those to the very thing that was right before their eyes, impending doom, destruction, and death. The sliver of hope the people clung to became an instrument of pain. In a pleasant mood, the tyrant stepped out on his terrace and looked over his dominion. A smile broke out across his ebony face teeth shining like pearls. He rubbed his hands together in that classic way villains do. Some believe that mind control is a form of magic or a technique that was created in the bowels of a secret research lab. But King Raya understood that the only thing needed to control others was weaponized words. Thinking before he spoke, the words he uttered were methodically chosen with the utmost care. Falling from his lips like confetti, transient and beautiful words drew others closer, and like an insect, balancing precariously unaware on the ledge of a carnivorous plant, they fell. He hid behind a congenial mask of concern, knowing that he was the cause of their calamity. Born into a family of monsters, King Raya became the vilest. He became the horrifying backstory of his family's already grisly lineage. At the height of his power, every tree was sold, every piece of flora coveted and claimed. The temperature of the earth rivaled the infernos of hell. Ecosystems were ruined. Children starved, and their parents were too distracted with survival to ask intellectual questions. Having been dragged up by frustrated and angry adults, the young became mutinous. And the king? He was overlooked. God was too busy trying to save those he harmed. The suggestion from the knight was fully realized. When things collapsed, he and his were safe and secure in his air-conditioned palace. While just outside the walls of his fortress, billions starved, and a war waged over the scraps. It was his full intention to become the piper that everyone had to pay. And he regretted nothing. No one suspected how truly evil King Raya was until it was too late. T minus 6... In the year of our Lord, 2741, the senior officer looked up from his report just as the jumper was injected. The experimental drug had a less than desirable success rate, but his objections were ignored. After a quick glance at the monitor displaying the jumper's vital signs, he returned his attention to the arrest warrant that allowed them to locate and apprehend the most destructive fugitive jumper of all time. The fugitive had been jumping back and forth through the past and multiple timelines for so long, they feared that she was now an important historical figure in science. The research conducted determined the rumors were true. Her profound effects on the timelines were undeniable. It was feared that undoing her actions might cause overwhelmingly negative consequences that couldn't even be imagined. The agency was faced with the dilemma. Set the timeline straight and undo her actions without knowing what the results might be or allow her to continue jumping through the past only to make things worse. The heated debate lasted for days. There was simply too much damage that she could still do. The decision was made. They would apprehend her. T minus five. The time between jumps was becoming less frequent. After I failed to kill the knight, I was sent back to pre-biblical times. An agency historian found written evidence that our fugitive jumper had direct interaction with one of the students that the angels had broken the law to teach. His name was Caleb, and he wasn't the only one who passed the time gazing into the heavens above. Asher did too, so Shamshiel, showed them the signs of the sun. While Asher watched the sun set, Jonah watched the moon rise, wondering why it changed its shape. To help Jonah understand what he was seeing, Sariel illuminated him to the magic of the moon. Priscilla was also mesmerized by the twinklings in the night sky and, enamored by her curiosity, Kokobiel showed her the patterns of the stars. Among the group that watched the sky, Abigail was the most remarkable. She noticed how the moon affected people and suspected that the sun and stars did too. Abigail's curiosity of how things might be interconnected inspired Barkwell to teach her astrology. Their private lessons didn't remain in secret. Just like the previous students, each one taught one and together They created a sundial and a lunar wheel and discovered how to mark the passing of time. They named the constellations, charted the stars, and used those maps to navigate ships. To apprehend her here was critical. The continuous efforts of the students to understand the sea and the stars would eventually allow others to explore and exploit them. The answers to the questions they asked unlocked the keys to fortune-telling. They learned to navigate the sea and the sky. From their studies, new words were created. Naval captain, airline pilot, astronaut, but worst of all, time traveler. Twenty jumpers were sent. She escaped us all. T. Minus four? Only 17 of us made it home, and a year went by before the agency historians uncovered new intel. I was sent back to the year 2012. There was an event that seemed significant, but there was a debate over which event we should focus on, so several jumpers were sent. I was sitting outside at a bistro that was located on the edge of a farmer's market, waiting on tea. The technology of the 21st century allowed us to be in contact with other jumpers without raising suspicion. I picked up a handheld device called a cell phone, but became apprehensively distracted. In an instant, the bright sunny day was covered in a blanket of darkness as clouds the size of mountains rolled in overhead. Seconds later, forked lightning, brilliant and white hot, flashed through the blackening sky, parting the way for the thunderous deluge. The wind was next. A tornado, not just one, but three. The triplets barreled over the landscape like runaway freight trains obliterating everything in their paths. The gales howled with the violence and raw power of angry gods as if cheering each other on as they violently twisted and rotated around each other. Carnage. Trees were ripped up by the roots and tossed aside. Houses were blown from their foundations and disintegrated in the air. The entire country was reduced to rubble in agony. In the semi-blindness, I pulled myself up to a standing position as I began to recover my consciousness. I found myself standing by a pillar some distance from where I had been sitting. The building the fugitive was in lay around him in chunks with overturned tables and broken chairs. The back of the restaurant was on fire, but I didn't register it as I wondered where all the people had gone. As my hearing returned, I heard screaming. A ways off, a woman swayed like a mindless zombie. Blood and dust caked her hair. She made no attempt to walk. Instead, she just rocked side to side, screaming. I had no idea what had happened. When the winds died down, Nothing was left standing, and only a few thousand people survived. In a blink of an eye, everything had been reduced to kindling. Nothing was salvageable. An entire country smudged off the geopolitical map. I wouldn't come to realize what had truly happened until I returned to my own timeline. Of all the inventions ever imagined, man still hadn't figured out to protect themselves against the wind. What they did discover, though, was how to weaponize it. It was reported as the worst natural disaster the world had ever seen. Only the Skyward group and their adversaries knew otherwise. The genocidal event wasn't caused by Mother Nature. It was the successful deployment of artificial weather technologies a weapon developed within the labs of a research facility. It was payback for the enemy's creation of a hurricane that had devastated the southern United States just seven years prior. T minus three. The agency historians found another correlation between the disruptions caused by the renegade jumper. So I was sent back to the year before Christ, 456. The target of observation was a woman named Alicia. I didn't understand her significance because, like Adonis, she wasted her time staring at her reflection in the water's edge. Not only was she distracted by her own beauty, but she was also obsessed by the beauty of others. She had no sense of boundaries, She would walk up to a person and caress their face, run her fingers through their hair, or look deep into their eyes so that she could gaze upon the image of herself dancing in their pupils. It was seductive and unsettling at the same time. Gadriel loved the way Alicia looked at him, the way she touched him, admired him. He felt he had no other choice but to show her how to make and use cosmetics. With help from Hannah, Deborah, Rachel, and Azariah, she made creams, elixirs, lotions, and potions. People began to apply fine chalk powder to their faces. Extract from rose petals was used as rouge, and sticks of coal gently lined eyes with black powder. Beeswax and red dye were mixed together and rubbed on lips. Natural beauty. Enhanced. Things changed. It became war paint. It became a mask to hide behind. It was used as a substitute for self-confidence. It was an illusion. And for billions of people, it had become necessary. It wasn't until I jumped to the year 2511 that I saw the connection. As a personal attendant, my stay in that timeline was short. The fugitive wasn't there. The only reason I was present was to be shown firsthand why Alicia was so relevant. The thing in the bathroom was a tub. It was big enough for six people, but she would be the only person to ever soak in it. Submerged in the heated liquid, feeling it caress every inch of her skin. The aroma. It was her heaven. Her sacred sanctuary. She could have stayed there all day, but she had things to do. She sat up and stepped out of the pool, with skin as creamy as fresh-poured milk. Her unusual blue eyes were a mingling of violet and cobalt that was softly iridescent. Her hair was long, thick, and jet black, cascading past the small of her slender back in waves that looked like a waterfall. Like Snow White, her lips were as red as a rose, but when she licked the blood from them, they returned to their normal, peachy hue. She looked no older than a woman in her mid-forties. As she stepped onto the cool tile's I along with two other attendants, dried her off and draped a silk robe over her firm, youthful body. The once plastic surgeon, now CEO of Icor Cosmetics, was 96 years old. The idols that were worshipped in the name of beauty demanded blood and sacrifices. There wasn't anything a true believer wouldn't do to ensure they had it. The reign of Countess Elizabeth Bathory de Exit scarred the earth, but worse than that, her rule had inspired. 205 years after her death, John Keats wrote, Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye know on earth, and all ye need to know. Several millennia later, Lady Bathory's vision was taken to new heights. When the treatment of blood facials first became available to the wealthiest of the public, clients receiving the treatment had to use their own blood. But the cosmetic doctor had found a way around that. And like Countess Bathory, she too was suspected of practicing villainy. But she was no monster. She was a blood mage. She, like the Countess, knew that one could gain the magical ability to gain immortality through the drinking of or bathing in someone else's blood. The power would be enhanced if the blood were drawn through a ritualistic killing, exponentially so if it were the blood of the young. As it oftentimes does, history had once again repeated itself. This was the greatest famine the world had ever seen. Child and senior abandonment, infanticide, the quiet killing of the elderly. Madness, murder, mayhem, and cannibalism were the ways of this new world. There were no ethical or moral objections to the ways people chose or were forced to survive. Thanks to the new young king, Raya, and my failure to kill the first night. Everything was a commodity. Unlike the famine of 1314, parents no longer had to leave their children in a forest on a dark and stormy night. Now they could sell them. Girls were worth more than boys, but the CEO bought them both. The gruesome acts of violence that took place within the walls of Cactus Castle were not reenacted in the CEO's sprawling home. The bloodletting she performed was sterile and clinical. After being bathed, fed, and tested for transmittable blood diseases, the children spent the remaining days of their lives lounging on the comfortable beds that furnished the therapeutic phlebotomy lab. They ate well and were treated with kindness and were kept warm. When a child reached the point where they no longer served the CEO's purpose. They were draped in silk, put to sleep, and placed in the incinerator. When I returned to my own timeline, I did so in tears. T minus two? Looking through the tube, There was only one word in which to describe the landscape spread out before me. Apocalyptic. I sucked a sharp breath from between my teeth as the needle pierced my skin. Normally, there would be a period of amnesia and disorientation. Normally. This was mission critical, and there was nothing normal about the jump. I wasn't going to be waking up dazed and confused because I had been injected with a serum that would prevent unconsciousness. I was going to land wide awake. There was no other choice. I am an ambassador. And for this jump, time would be of the essence as I was now the hinge that everything hangs on. I returned my attention to the machine and watched the people get up fight to survive, get back into bed, and do it all over again, cycling rapidly between night and day. Maggie stopped the engine at the next dawn. Neither of us spoke as we peered through the portal. It was a hellscape. The environmental devastation was nearly complete. Soon, Only the simplest of organisms would be able to survive on a planet that resembled the most nightmarish depictions of hell. The technicians inspected my suit for a final time. Like the drug I had been injected with, what I was wearing was experimental. In theory, this material wouldn't fuse with my skin, but that was going to be the very least of my concerns. I wasn't going to be able to touch the rocks with my bare hands. I wasn't going to be able to touch the water either, let alone drink it. If somehow my exposed skin were to so much as brush up against any of the plants thriving in that toxic environment, I'd be dead. Even while indoors, an oxygen tank was going to be required. Inhaling the polluted air would be like filling my lungs with tiny shards of glass. Go for jump! I hated this, but there was no other choice. I am an ambassador. So, with a steadying breath, I stepped off the platform. It was the final days for all of humanity and he was expecting them to come out in droves to plead their innocence. He raised an eyebrow as just one human who had no authorization to be in this timeline approached. He looked at the jumper through his compound eyes, his mouth a thin line. As the ambassador began to speak, he didn't listen. There wasn't anything that could be said to stay the outcome. They had been sent the required number of messages through their prophets, despite their penchant for killing them. It wasn't us. It was the corporations. We just did what we had to do to survive. He had heard it all before through their greed, they bought products made with the blood of slaves and the sweat of children. They abused their own kind, waged war after war, slaughtering in insurmountable numbers despite being told that they shall not kill. The one in front of him was still talking and he still wasn't listening. As her apprehension grew, she stopped. Now She was begging. He wasn't moved or impressed. Remorse is easy when you face annihilation. He grew bored of the drivel. We have your father, Epaproditus, in custody. The one who stood before him was the fugitive jumper that the entire world had been looking for, the one that inspired those burdened with the responsibility of foresight. To act, Stunned, the ambassador stopped speaking. The senior officer of God's special forces glared at the child of an angel who, with the help of her father, had wreaked so much havoc on a planet that was meant to be a paradise. He couldn't help but wonder if she truly believed she would escape justice. With a shrug of his sculpted shoulder, Erkuleen did what he was sent to do. In the year before Christ, 419. Time travel is nothing like it is in science fiction. There are no swirling lights or tunnels. Just pain. Excruciating pain. The heavens above were torn open. And, in an instant, the sky was full of angels. The choir descending through the rip in the Earth's atmosphere was none other than the highly feared Malachum. They arrived nine days earlier than forecasted, and it was the angel Erkane who led the charge. I wasn't where I was supposed to be, and there was no way I could get there in time. My anxiety grew to a fevered pitch. They were coming. For my father, and this time, they would have him. Be it a son of man, a lord of heaven, or the dregs of hell, no one escapes the swift and terrible justice of the Malakim. I cried as I watched them ascending to heaven with my father in chains. It was over. This was the timeline I had been born in. And this was the timeline in which I would die. There would be no more jumps for me. I was going to die for real and forever this time. My father was going to be unjustly punished for an act that shouldn't have been deemed a crime. He didn't believe that knowledge was something to be kept at the top of a mountain that not everyone had the ability to climb. Did God not say, ask, and ye shall receive? Did he not advise to seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom? My father's questions were valid. How can you teach if first you do not learn? My father did not fault God. He understood that he just wanted to protect his most prized creations. Being a father himself, he knew that God didn't want his flock to be physically or emotionally hurt. That he just wanted to protect them from harm, pain, unhappiness, negative experiences, rejection, failure, disappointments, and from the hurt of certain truths. Despite this, the serpent found his way into the garden, and the sheltered and naive couple were wholly unprepared. Which was my father's point. In a world with so much confusion, it is easy to become misguided. It was the truth, no matter how painful, that set one free. In the days after my father was captured... The rains began to fall, deprived of precious water to bless our fields of wheat. The mood throughout the village was joyous as the first few droplets fell. I knew better. I knew what was coming. I had trained lifetimes for this. After the third straight week of rain, our streets lay below turbid water that had become a sickly green-brown river. It carried trash and pestilence. The collective temperament was far from festive. Five weeks later, with 60 people dead, the rain continued to pour down on our village. We waded through chest-high water. It was so cold, it stung. Unable to soak into the already submerged ground, The water crept up into the fabric that draped us, clamping its icy fingers into our already frigid skin. There was no refuge. There was no movement. And no one spoke. We all just huddled together on the highest hill with our heads down. The only thing that disrupted the sound of emptiness was the loud, gregarious boom of thunder suddenly the rain stopped slowly cautiously we looked up and around the air felt damp and the clouds that brought this on us made no moves to depart leaving the day just as dark as night the unsettling stillness amplified the smallest of sounds there was a fleeting feeling of hope however Even the smallest child felt it was too soon to either celebrate such fortune or let loose even a small smile. The collective fear was just as dark as the low-hanging clouds. And for good reason. The story of this devastating biblical flood would be told by clerics and debated by skeptics until the end of time. The sound that broke the silence rent the air with a noise that left our ears feeling like they just exploded. Then, all of a sudden, water rushed from the mountain. The chorus of screams sounded like the unleashing of a demon, but it was nothing of the sort. The sounds of hysteria and disbelief bordered on terror. They were desperate, terrified, and human. The blood, drained from my face. Before I was even aware of making a conscious decision, I dove into the swift rising waters and swam to the large rock that used to sit next to a river. I climbed on top of it. The flood tore down everything that stood in its way with raw power and without conscience. It washed it all away, as if we were nothing more than specks of dirt on cloth. To add insult to injury, the rain returned. The wooded planks holding the ark upright splintered under the weight of the crashing waves, and the vessel began to bob from side to side, appearing for a moment that it might capsize. Seconds later, it stabilized and started to float away. Standing on the aft of the ark, Emzara, the wife of Noah, watched the world as she knew it, being destroyed by the divine water spilling forth from the cup of God's wrath. We made eye contact and waved to each other at the same time. Just then, an angry wave swept me from the stone and plunged me into the sea of judgment. When I surfaced, gasping for breath, I saw Imzara leaning over the railing, watching me as I drowned. Not every cloud has a silver lining, but this one did. I had been jumping through timelines, altering history and avoiding my own capture in order to aid and abet my father and protect his vision. One year ago today, I had befriended Mzara, and over the course of the 52 weeks leading up to this event, I taught her everything I knew. I taught her everything my father had taught me. In the future, after the earth dried off, the woman who married Imzara's son would become Imzara's pupil. Methuselah wasn't the only one who would live for hundreds of years. The wives of Shem, Ham, and Japheth would enjoy fantastically long lifespans as well, living for centuries while teaching each generation they saw come and go. 900 years after the deluge, Sambith, a recipient of Imzara's teachings, would later be known as the Babylonian Sibyl. She would move to Greece, where she would become the prophetic priestess presiding over the Apollonian Oracle. The great library of Alexandria would be built in Egypt. The forbidden lessons of Penemu, Armaros Simjaza, Gadriel, Araquil, Azazel, Ezequiel, Shamshiel, Sariel, Cocobiel, Barquel, and my father, Epaphroditus, would be relearned. As water filled my lungs, as I was choking on my last breath, I stopped fighting. People rarely die with smiles on their faces. I wasn't going to be one of those people. I surrendered to death as gracefully as I could, knowing that my father's vision, an age of enlightenment, of ingenuity, and a legacy of learning, would be realized. I have been training for this for lifetimes.
0: Today's author was Crystal Connor, with her story, T-432, told by Denise Michelle Johnson. To find out more about today's author and voice actor, please visit thewickedlibrary.com and check out their bio pages. You can find links to their bios and everything else in today's episode. Our lead editor and executive producer is Scarlett R. Algy. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Veteze of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was beautifully created by Jeanette Andromeda, our creative director and executive producer. Our showrunner and producer is me, Daniel Foytek. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story
1: Studios, all rights reserved.